Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, the far left self-appointed arbiter of hate groups ousts its co-founder, the SEIU's bank launches a campaign to defund the social conservative right, and the Democrats and their allies take aim at the delicate balance of power between America's federal states and the national electorate. The Southern Poverty Law Center, the liberal press's self-appointed arbiter of hate groups that has accumulated half a billion dollars in its war chest by equating social conservative lawyers with violent white supremacist extremists, fired its co-founder, Morris Dees, last week. The SPLC did not say why Dees was fired, but its statements, quote, hinted at misconduct, referring to a failure to adhere to SPLC values, close quote, in the words of the Montgomery Advertiser. A former SPLC writer wrote a piece in The New Yorker expressing concerns about the SPLC's focus on fundraising and fundraising-friendly causes, and alleging that Dees had a reputation for inappropriate behavior towards female staff. The SPLC hired Tina Chen, a Chicago attorney that the Montgomery Advertiser called, quote, well-versed in gender and racial equity issues, close quote, who was once chief of staff to Michelle Obama, to, quote, review its workplace environment and policies, close quote. This isn't the first time the SPLC has faced accusations of inappropriate conduct. A 1994 advertiser investigation found former SPLC staffers alleged that Dees was a racist and behaved in a manner that made African-American employees feel, quote, threatened, charges that Dees denied. The advertiser was apparently a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for that investigation. Dee's ouster came after SPLC staff signed open letters protesting the treatment of non-white and female employees, after the resignation of Meredith Horton, an SPLC senior attorney who is an African-American woman. Laying aside the question of the alleged hypocrisy, the SPLC has seen its image tarnished in recent years for its aggressive, and critics argue excessive, fundraising, and for tarring critics of progressive social policy as haters by association. The SPLC has listed social conservative litigation group Alliance Defense Fund as a, quote, hate organization for its opposition to LGBT interests, even as ADF's arguments have won cases protecting religious rights before federal courts, including the Supreme Court. SPLC agreed to pay a $3 million settlement to Majid Nawaz, a Muslim British liberal politician and former Islamist who repudiated extremism, for labeling Nawaz an anti-Muslim extremist. And in 2014, SPLC apologized for listing then-Republican activist doctor, now Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, as an extremist watch list. And while the SPLC is embroiled in scandal, Big Labor's bank is using the SPLC's hate lists to attack options used by conservative donors. The left-wing campaign seeks to get commercial providers of so-called donor-advised funds to ban contributions to groups placed on lists created by the SPLC and other left-wing organizations. Tying the union labor to the campaign by Amalgamated Foundation gets a bit confusing because the union control comes through a network of organizations. Amalgamated Charitable Foundation is a charity associated with Amalgamated Bank, an ideologically progressive financial institution long associated with the labor union movement. Amalgamated Bank is owned by Workers United, a labor union descended from the various New York City garment worker unions. Workers United's national president and national secretary-treasurer sit on the Amalgamated Bank board. Workers United is a division of the Service Employees International Union, created by a schism in the Unite Here labor union engineered by former Workers United president Bruce Rayner in 2009. So in short, a division of SEIU, which is the largest democratic institutional political contributor from 1990 through 2018, according to Open Secrets, 
owns a bank which runs a fund that is now lobbying other funds to deny funds to conservative organizations so designated by left-wing organizations, many of which are funded by the SEIU. The campaign concerns so-called donor-advised funds, which amalgamated charitable offers. Donor-advised funds enable donors to establish foundation-like bequests without the complexity and legal hurdles, and some of the regulations, of a traditional foundation. A number of fund providers are commercial financial institutions, most prominently Schwab, Vanguard, and Fidelity. Other fund providers are explicitly left-wing, like the Tides Foundation or Amalgamated Charitable, or are conservative or libertarian, like the Bradley Impact Fund or Donors Trust. An important benefit for conservative donors facing union-orchestrated activist campaigns like this one is the relative anonymity provided by donor-advised giving. Expenditures by the donor-advised fund are reported as grants from the fund provider nonprofit organization, not the individual contributor. The SCIU would find its pressure campaigns easier if this anonymity were taken away. And while social conservatives are in the union's crosshairs first, supporters of capitalism should expect their natural enemies to target them next. Liberals attack the First Amendment's guarantees of free and vigorous political speech through the blatantly unconstitutional legislation H.R. 1. Seriously, even the ACLU had problems with it. And now they are turning to attack the delicate balance between regions and factions that defines America's federal political system. In the dock are the Electoral College in the U.S. Senate, which disperse power from the metropolitan centers which have massive amounts of people, cultural, and financial capital to the several states, which have diverse interests, diverse productive industries, and diverse cultures. The liberal campaign against the Electoral College dates from at least 2000, when Republican George W. Bush won election by that body despite receiving 500,000 fewer ballots than Democrat Al Gore. When this inverted result repeated in 2016, the outrage increased. If the so-called popular vote, the national aggregate vote, isn't a competition with a meaningful prize so we can't know with certainty who would win in any given election, were to decide the chief executive, the U.S. would not be joining an overwhelming Democratic consensus. Among rich, developed OECD countries and other democracies bigger than the state of California, only the Philippines, Mexico, and South Korea elect their national leaders by plurality. Most of these prominent Democratic countries use some kind of multi-party proportional system, and the U.S.'s Electoral College resembles the constituency winner-take-all system used by India, the United Kingdom, and Canada. It's just that the Electoral College isn't also the national legislature. Separation of powers and all that. Countries which do use a national popular vote typically require an outright majority, 50% plus one, to avoid a runoff. And if no candidate receives an outright majority, which neither Bush nor Gore nor Clinton nor Trump did, would require a second round of voting to determine the winner. Leading the campaign for plurality voting, the Mexico-style system, for president are the Institute for Research on Presidential Elections and National Popular Vote, which are advocating state-level legislation to award electors to the plurality winner. Supposedly, this would take effect when states holding a majority of electoral votes pass an interstate compact. There is some question as to whether this is even legal. Historically, states have had authority to change how they choose their electors, but subsequent constitutional amendments have called that authority into question. And interstate compacts must be ratified by Congress. Targeting the Senate is a much less organized effort, but one that has received support from influential sources. Stand Up Ideas, a Hewlett Foundation-funded, nominally conservative organization led by former presidential candidate Evan McMullen, and Protect Democracy Project, a Hewlett Foundation-funded liberal organization, challenged the Senate and Electoral College for, quote, denying the majority the ability to govern, close quote. 
For one thing, don't tell me you're defending norms while you call for fundamental overthrow of the constitutional order. But substantively, the lefts and stand-up ideas focus on the majority, as if popular majorities never shift, coalitions never fluctuate, and Harold Macmillan's events, dear boy, events, have no impact on political victories and defeats, shows a failure to understand the importance of balancing factions that exist throughout the American federal system. The constitutional framers, especially James Madison, worried that an organized interest, a faction, could use the government to run rampant over the rest of the public. And while a system could be created that paralyzed the government by requiring too much consensus to operate, hello Articles of Confederation, the framers sought balance between majority rule and minority rights. The balance we ended up with might not be perfect, but it does require a triple majority to do anything too controversial. In the House, a two-year term compels a current majority. This is moderated by the Senate, with a six-year term and state equality, requiring a diversity of regions and some consistency in a majority over time. Finally, the Electoral College compels a coalition to be at least somewhat geographically distributed, preventing a single-state faction from running over the others. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.